the Plain Dealer and Cleveland.com. Get action and protect the public. It's a great day on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and the Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Layla Tassi, and Laura Johnston. And Layla, you get the celebratory story. Report us, reporter Lucas Deprile had a big story we discussed earlier this week about how the attorney general was chasing down people with 20-year-old parking tickets in violation of an agreement he had with Cleveland Municipal Court Clerk. What's the good news follow-up? Well, so yes, Lucas's story not only pointed out that they were the AG's office was chasing down these 20-year-old parking tickets on behalf of the clerk, but that more than 98% of the tickets that the clerk had submitted to the AG for collections did not comply with the terms of their collection agreement. That is, that the agreement specified that the AG would only collect tickets where the principal fine exceeded $100. And nearly all of the 100,000 tickets in the database that Clerk Earl Turner's office sent were for these piddly little $20 fines from the early aughts. So people had been receiving these threatening collections letters all of a sudden for decades old infractions that they can't even remember, let alone defend against. Well, just days after Lucas's story ran, he hears from a spokesperson from the AG's office who forwards along a letter written by Lucas Ward, who oversees Ohio Attorney General's Collections Enforcement Section, in very terse language, Ward notifies Earl Turner that the AG's office is terminating their collections agreement effective immediately. He says Turner's office failed to certify that the database of tickets that they were sending for collections met the criteria of the memorandum of understanding that they had. So because of that breach of their agreement, all bets are off. Ward also told Turner that if he if it becomes clear that refunds should be issued, that's on Turner. He wrote, it is your mistake, so it must be your cure. And he ended the letter by saying that if if Turner's office has any debts to collect that legitimately meet the AG's collection standards, then the AG would be willing to discuss that. But until then, he told Turner, take a hike with your $20 parking tickets. <laughs> yeah. And look, the city violated the agreement or the clerk violated the agreement by sending a database that included things that were not within the definition. But the attorney general's office knew what the definition was, so they could easily see that they were dunning people for less than $100. At least they did the right thing. Look, we talk about it over and over again, the value of Cleveland.com and the Plain Dealer to this community. We are a watchdog. We are always on the alert to see if things are going wrong where we can help people. And it's the power of this institution that stopped this. Hopefully it's dead for good. Congratulations to Lucas Deprile. He put a spotlight on it and good for Dave Yosoff is for doing the right thing. Lucas must have felt pretty good yesterday, right? He did. I was saying before the podcast that he, as soon as he got that letter, we were in the newsroom and he came running over with his computer open and just <laughs> showed it to me, just silent, speechless. And uh, we were so pumped. We got the story up right away. It was well, it was a good day to be in the newsroom. <laughs> how many thousands of people did he just help with a good story, put a focus on it? Nobody else did it. We did it. And that's what makes the difference. Right. You know, he knows also that that already like a quarter of a million bucks has been collected on this uh, on these tickets. So hopefully, hopefully this will this will help out people who are yet to pay. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, and it puts people in a bad spot. If they're, they were convinced they had paid their ticket, how do they prove it? This whole thing stunk. The, the clerk of the court should be ashamed of themselves for doing this. This is not the way to conduct business. And I'll remind you, Earl Turner is elected. You might remember this at election time. You're listening to Today in Ohio. More Dave Yost news. He had stopped using facial recognition software to solve crimes because of civil liberty concerns, but he's back to using it. Lisa, I gave you this question because I know how you pay attention to privacy issues. I think we're going to come down on opposite sides on this one. What's going on? So the Ohio Bureau of Criminal Investigation, which is under the AG's office, signed a one-year contract with New York-based Clearview AI, and this is a very controversial company. So this gives them access to the company's database of billions of photos that have been gathered from publicly available resources like news media, social media, and mugshots. So Yoast spokesman Steve Irwin says, basically, this is a one-year trial period. They're trying to fill in for uh, a facial recognition, you know, system that they had suspended a few years ago. So um, he said that BCI officials have only used it 17, in 17 investigations, 21 officials have accessed this Clearview AI database. And mostly they're looking homicides, drug trafficking cases, internet crimes against children, and unidentified human remains. But Irwin says the results of Clearview AI are mixed. He says this is really not for recognition per se, but it's an investigative clue or a lead. And he said that there are policies in place to prevent abuse. And like I said, said they're just trying to assess its effectiveness during this one-year trial period. Now, Clearview AI has caught a lot of flack from privacy advocates. Um, three states have filed lawsuits about getting photos without consent. Illinois, Vermont, and California, one of those suits was settled. I believe it was Illinois. They were fined 20 million euros by France. They were fined $94 million by the British government agency over data protection law violations. Yeah, I don't really have a problem with them doing this if they're chasing down murderers and rapists and others who pose a threat to the community. When we talked about this probably a year ago when he put his moratorium on using it, we talked about the dangers of how this could be expanded in ugly mm-hmm. ways. <laughs> you know, If they're using it to chase down people who have 20-year-old traffic tickets that would, or parking tickets, that would be a problem. But they're using it in a very limited fashion to try and catch some ser- what sound like serious felons. Right, right. And and like I said, this kind of replaces something that Yost had put in place. So back in 2011, Ohio allowed access to BMV driver's license and ID photos taken through that year, you know, and, uh, to, to anyone. I mean, access to the FBI and other federal agencies. But after a 2019 Washington Post article about states doing this, Yost suspended the program. And he said that BCI would re- launch an improved facial recognition system in 2020 with updated photos, but that's not ready yet. So that's why they jumped to Clearview AI in the meantime. Yeah. And it was interesting that they talked about how it's got limited use, that basically it might give them a clue, but they have to do a lot more work to to make it fruitful, I guess. We'll have to see how much they use it in the future. Yeah. And like I said, you know, things like this have to have strong guardrails and it seems like they're, they're thinking about that, but guardrails can always be knocked down. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. 
Ohio's Jim Jordan is blasting away at Steve Dettelbach, head of the ATF. Laura, why is he doing it? Is he just trying to get more headlines? Jim Jordan, never. I mean, it doesn't work on this podcast at all. Uh, he's talking about short-barreled rifles and these things called stabilizing braces. Basically, the ATF has determined that stabilizing braces should be treated like short-barreled rifles, which they're saying is clarifying. And Jim Jordan is basically saying, you're writing your own rules. He accused Dettelbach of trying to be a one-man Congress and said the policy turns law-abiding gun owners into felons as a result of unelected bureaucrats simply enacting a new regulation. So the idea is the ATF says there should be extra regulations on these stabilizing braces if they're modifying pistols to be fired from the shoulder. If you don't have them attached to anything, there's no problem. But it says it's making it easier for people to convert pistols into more dangerous weapons without going through the required background checks and registration requirements. I don't know, though. Jordan is right that if you want to limit the use of firearms in any way, it's got to be legislative. The ATF doesn't have the right to just impose new rules. They're clear. What they say is that we're not imposing a new rule. We're just defining this and that they have to register these stabilizing braces unless they remove them from the weapon. They have until the end of May. And Jordan's saying, you're going to, you know, make, prosecute all these people. They're saying, we're not going to go out and find all these 3 million people that have stabilizing braces and, and arrest them. Although the maximum penalty under this rule would be 10 years in prison. But and, and if people just don't know about it, they probably won't be punished. But they're saying these do make guns more dangerous, so they should be regulated. Yeah, I, I think it's an interesting uh, disagreement. We'll have to see if Jordan's screaming about it results in any action or if Dettelbach just proceeds as he is. The Democrats are on his side. I mean, they're saying that the GOP has become an anti-ATF, anti-FBI, anti-law enforcement, pro-insurrection party. And Dettelbach's just saying, I'm trying to, the level of gun violence in America is unacceptable and they're trying to make it safer. Right. But you got to do it within the law. This will end up in the courts if there's a legitimate legal issue and we'll have to see how judges decide it. You are listening to Today in Ohio. So Layla, Cuyahoga County as a customer appears to be a deadbeat. It routinely takes forever to pay its bills. How is that affecting people and companies that do business with the county? Well, it's it's caused quite a bit of hardship for nonprofit social service agencies that, in turn, have had hard, hard they've had a hard time making their ends meet, and they have had to dip into their own savings to stay afloat. It's especially a problem for health and human services contracts that end at the end of December but aren't renewed until months into the next calendar year. So those businesses continue to provide services for months without pay while their contract is being renewed. And sometimes if they happen to submit their invoices in January for November or December, they're even waiting for those payments too. So the YWCA of Greater Cleveland is one really good example of this. They have a $2.5 million contract with the county to run the Norma Herr Women's Shelter. And that's quite a bit, of ch- quite a, you know, it's a big chunk of the organization's total budget. Helen Forbes Fields, who who is the CEO of the YWCA, told Caitlin Durbin that at one point, the county was a million dollars in arrears with them. And meanwhile, they're left operating the county shelter on their own dime. 
the county owed Belfair JCB more than $2.1 million. Some of those unpaid bills were more than 180 days old, and more than two-thirds of them were for services provided to kids involved in the Department of Children and Family Services. So to cover all of that, Belfair was paying 6.25% on their line of credit. So the county says they've been working on solutions, improving internal processes, and adjusting the contract period so they no longer coincide with the end of the calendar year. And so far, it seems to be working because the agencies reported to Caitlin that April was better in terms of receiving payment on time from the county. But we'll be monitoring this. Yeah, I, this is a problem that dates back to the Armand Budish administration. Chris Renane hasn't even been in four months yet and sounds like he's working to fix it. Here's the thing. I don't remember this ever being a problem when we had an elected treasurer whose job it was to pay the bills. How did we go from a system under the treasurer to a disaster? You got to pay your bills. I mean, this is the county. I mean, I just don't get how they can be so terrible about basic functions. I don't know what has happened to the internal processes that uh, have, have made it run off the rails like this since those days. Maybe they I'm should sure. call Jim Rakakis and hire him as a consultant to come back and put back <laughs> what they had because this just isn't working. Not I mean, a bad idea. It's shameful <laughs> to not be paying your bills, especially when it's this kind of a hardship. It's just, it seems like the wreckage of the county that, that Chris Ronane has inherited is is just a lot to have to fix. Yeah, but you would you would expect that a government contract would be the most reliable kind, right? But no, this uh, this is this is torture for companies that have to float these services unpaid for months. Can't yeah, believe could, that. Yeah, I can't either. And it, and I know it didn't used to work this way. So maybe Chris Renane will call Jim Rakakis and said, "Save me, save me." Good story by Caitlin Durbin. Check it out. It's on Cleveland.com. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Why are Cuyahoga County child welfare officials trying to block a Cuyahoga County judge from getting custody of her grandchildren? This is a fascinating story, Lisa. Yeah, Common Police Judge Cassandra Collier-Williams is fighting for custody of her two grandchildren, both under age 10. This is in an ongoing juvenile court trial. So the Department of Child and Family Services had planned to recommend that Collier-Williams take custody, but county prosecutors uh, at, at, on the eve of the trial brought to light several instances that show her priority is her son and not the grandkids. So her son, Amnasun Azali, was convicted for the May 2021 murder of his wife, Mwaka, and he was sentenced to life in prison. There was a court order that barred him from speaking to his children or having any unsupervised contact until the trial was over. But prosecutors say Collier Williams allowed the kids to talk to their father on the phone, and he gave them help for their homework. And then she signed them up for counseling without approval from Child and Family Services. And there was also kind of a passive aggressive email that she sent to the kids' aunt in Botswana. The children were born in Botswana and then came to Ohio a year later. And she basically called the kids mine and said that they are home. So prosecutors weren't happy with that, but attorneys for Collier Williams and her son uh, say that uh, she had the children's best intentions in mind and the grandkids really want to live with her. Yeah, th this has been kind of an ugly situation ever since the judge's son went to prison. I mean, there the, she was. Remember, she was in the home at the time, and mm -hmm. there was some delay, and and when the police were called, so I I wonder how that is all 
playing out in this high profile case. Well, it sounds like there's been a lot of, I mean, there is a lot of back and forth. I, I urge people to read the cleveland.com article because there's a lot I had to leave out, but there was a lot of contention and back and forth about all of this. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see, but prosecutors are saying, we don't want her to have custody. It's just really, really sad. These poor kids have lost their mother. Their mother was murdered by their father. I mean, they're never, mm-hmm. their father's in prison for the rest of their lives. I I just, it must be so rough to be them. I just hope that the end result like is what's best for these kids. Mm-hmm. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What did Cleveland school students ask the two finalists for the CEO position when they got their chance this week? Laura? They want to be safe at school. It, it comes down to this. They can talk about other things, you know, education wise, but what they really want to make sure is, is that when they go to school, they don't have to deal with violence. And that's what they asked Warren Morgan and Ricky Rock, Ricardo Rocky Torres. Those are the two finalists to replace Eric Gordon as CEO of Cleveland Metropolitan School District. And it just kept coming back to that. And and you you understand why in 2021. In 2021, that was the most school shootings of the past decades, 93 shootings resulting in deaths and injuries at public and private elementary and high schools nationwide. Another 53 shootings were reported that didn't result in a death or injury, and that's from a 2021 re- report. So they, 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 this is important to kids, and it makes me sad that we talk about drag shows and critical race theory, and like all these kids want is to know if they go to school, they're not going to get shot. So here's one very prepared student question. Please share an example of a time you have had to respond to a significant safety or violence issue in a school in your previous role. What was the scenario? What was the outcome? How do you envision collaborating with community partners to ensure safe learning environments for all students, both at school and in the Cleveland community? I mean, hats off to this kid who really put together a very important question. Yeah, it was surprising how they kept bringing it back to safety. I wonder if it took the candidates aback that here's a chance for students to ask them anything. They could mm-hmm. talk about curriculum. They could talk about playgrounds, whatever. And they just kept coming back to how are you going to make me safe? Yeah, six times, according to Hannah Drown, who watched these on Zoom. And they did have some stuff like better school lunches, more social and emotional learning. But this is where their hearts are at. They wanted security officers to protect them not only from intruders, but from their classmates. They wanted increased school perimeter safety, phone policies for emergencies. And some a poor, poor little boy, he wanted a metal detector that works because the one in his school doesn't. And so they have to go through everybody's backpacks. And that takes a long time, plus is not hundred percent safe. It's amazing how many times we see security equipment installed, the cameras that the police use, the metal detectors where it's there, but it's not working and they don't fix it. It's just surprising that you pay for the equipment, but you really don't maintain it. Uh, good stuff. I, I, the kids are always interesting to see what's on their minds. Uh, I'd love to hear more from I- the candidates. I think these kids should go down to to Columbus and talk to their legislators and say, this is what we're worried about. They won't listen. The legislators don't care about the constituents. They just care about amassing their power. Everything they do is about just deciding to Well, then they can tell these poor kids that. Yeah, well, they do every day with the way they vote. You're listening to Today in Ohio. 
Cleveland Mayor Justin Bibb met with our editorial board this week to discuss a few things, including his 10-year plan to spend millions assembling and cleaning up vacant parcels of land for employers looking to move here. Layla, this can sound like mumbo-jumbo, but this probably is the most important thing that he's put on the table. It's pretty, pretty vibrant and bold. What are the details that have emerged since we first discussed it? I agree. He went deeper in these plans. We have reported some of it, but but Courtney captured all of it in the story this week. What fascinated me the most from this presentation from the mayor was this revelation of just how many businesses had approached the city in the past year about building or expanding in Cleveland. And the city had to forego those opportunities because they just didn't have enough contiguous land or that the land that was available wasn't ready, often because it's, you know, unremediated brownfields. Since last June alone, Cleveland had to pass on seven jobs Ohio inquiries for job sites requiring 15 to 30 acres. Most of those would have brought manufacturing jobs to the city. So one prong of Mayor Bibb's plan to spend this last tranche of of American Rescue Plan Act dollars is is this $50 million plan to clean up and assemble land to help attract employers back to the city. Businesses want land that is at least 10 acres and ready to develop. Many prefer sites that are 25 to 30 acres, and so they're really going to focus on that sweet spot. Public entities, including the city, own about 30% of the land in Cleveland. So this should be kind of easier to do than if they were just kind of, you know, starting from scratch. But they're largely brownfields that require a lot of environmental cleanup, and they're scattered throughout the city. Justin Bibb plans on raising funds from a variety of sources to double the city's investment in this this effort. And his vision is that the city can prepare more than 1,000 acres for development and attract business that could potentially create as many as 65,000 jobs. Yeah, it's it's a dramatic move that he's making. A lot of this is on the east side and specifically the southeast side, right? Yeah, there is a another prong of his plan is $15 million investment in the southeast side. Specifically, the city would target Lee Harvard, Mount Pleasant, and Union Miles. They chose those neighborhoods, even though there are others that have greater needs because you know, A, the city said, well, you got to start somewhere. And B, the, the, the chosen neighborhoods include a lot of city-owned, vacant, or, or otherwise available land. And, and also those neighborhoods already have some things going for them. And so the city can really build upon that. So that's kind of a separate prong. But the, the, the thousand acres they want to work on is, is spread out throughout the city. It sounded like there was a little bit of sleight of hand going on with the ARPA money that they want to put into this because I, I think it was Lisa that asked the question, hey, don't you have a deadline of spending the ARPA money by the end of next year? And they said, well, we already spent it because we, we used it as budget replacement money and uh-huh. that freed up budget money to do this. That sounds a little shaky to me. I don't know if I were the federal auditors that I'd be too keen on that. Well, I'm sure they're not the only city that's done that. It's a it's a common tactic, I think, and and they're right. I mean these these are huge plans that will take longer than the time they have left on the clock to spend their ARPA funds. So. Well- I kind of don't blame them for the sleight of hand that has occurred here. Yeah, look, I, I, I think it's a great idea. It's a far better use of ARPA money than what the county council did with its slush funds. This is 
This is far-reaching. It's broad-minded. It's bold. It's the kind of stuff that we hoped we'd see exactly. from Justin Bibb when he ran for mayor. I mean, it, it, this is what it's about. And in his second year, he's launched some very, very good things. I, by the way, I do want to point out one of the coolest things that's happened since he became mayor was over the weekend for Earth Day when he and Chris Renane, the county executive, got on bikes and led people on an eight-mile bike ride. Can you imagine Frank Jackson and Armin Budish having done that? <laughs> Maybe with electric bikes. Maybe. <laughs> it was a well, great message they sent by doing that. I think I was a little concerned about, the, I think the devil might be in the details. I think it's a wonderful and bold and very ambitious plan and something that Cleveland needs. But when we asked him about, you know, you're going to have to cobble together some of these tracks to make contiguous parcels. And I believe Layla asked the question, well, does that include eminent domain? And I, I feel like we didn't get a real good answer on that. Yeah, they said no, right? Wasn't yeah, kind of. They, they said kinda. They said eminent domain. What I love, eminent domain in Ohio is not the tool it is in other states, meaning other states are far more abusive of private landowners. Yeah. So they seem to say that to use eminent domain in Ohio is too problematic so that, that it sounds like they wouldn't be using it. Anyway, good stuff. Check out Courtney's story. It's on cleveland.com. It's today in Ohio. Where do grad schools in Ohio and Northeast Ohio come out in the latest rankings, Lisa? They have done quite well. And of course, you know, the big one, Ohio State University, they had um, several in the top 50. So this is the best graduate schools in various fields for 2023 and 2024. OSU is in the top 50 for 15 of their programs. The highest ranking one was veterinary medicine at number three, nursing and healthcare management at number eight. And they also ranked in public health, computer science, engineering, math, and chemistry down to their lowest ranking, which is 44 for a full-time MBA program. Case Western Reserve had three in the top 50, nursing at number 14, uh, physician assistants at 27, and the part-time MBA at number 50, and also University of Dayton and Ursuline College, a tiny school in my neighborhood. They ranked number 34 in nursing. Uh, Cincinnati did well also. The University of Cincinnati was number 41 in nursing. And Cleveland State University, for specialized graduate degrees within graduate school came in number three for urban policy and number 12 for uh, local government management. I, I do wonder about how long these ratings will continue. You've seen some of the larger schools mm -hmm. decide that we don't really buy the way they do these rankings. We're not going to participate anymore. Uh, there's a lot of competition by colleges because it's a shrinking student population, mm -hmm. at least for now. So it's in, it'll be interesting to see who pulls out, who stays in. Harvard and Yale don't need rankings to, to draw students. Right, right. But, and actually, yeah, go ahead. But the schools you're mentioning probably do need this to, to mm -hmm. market themselves. I mean, Ursuline College is, I mean, you'd think it was a high school if you didn't know it was a college. It's right there like off a of green road. But um, U.S. News did change their ranking system slightly, though. They lowered the weights that they give to reputation factors to 25% in some rankings. So that allows outcomes from these programs to outweigh the reputation of the school. Yeah, you're gonna, I think you'll be seeing them pivot a good bit so that they don't have this wash away. I'm sure it's a lucrative annual rating that they do. You're listening to Today in Ohio. All right, Laura, which state employees make more than Governor Mike DeWine? 
a whole lot of them, about 319 of them, including his son, the Supreme Court Justice, who didn't recuse himself. (laughs) DeWine was paid (laughs) about $168,000. That's about $81 an hour. Justice Pat DeWine received $189,000. And actually, nine out of the top 10 paid state employees were psychiatrists with the Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services. The the highest paid was Florence Kimbo, $478,000 at a rate of $135.49 an hour. A nurse practitioner in Athens really added up there. And also in the top 10, a corrections officer named Justin Kaplinger. I assume he worked a whole lot of overtime to get up to $186,775. It's it's interesting when you run these lists, you, you, you generate some reader scorn because they think mm-hmm. these amounts are too high, but it's what the market requires. If you want to have people in like doctors on the payroll, you got to pay them. And a corrections officer making that much money, I guarantee he earned it. He probably worked tirelessly like some of the Cleveland police did to fill the vacancies. And he did that during the tail end of a pandemic. So you right. really can't begrudge. His hourly f- rate, $26 an hour. Yeah. So that's a lot of hours he's given up to, to take home that pay. It'll help his public pension because the public pensions are based on their top three years or five years of pay. So it's a sacrifice that pays off for a long, long time. So the story is on cleveland.com. If you want to see some of the others that make more than the governor, you could also argue that all of them work harder than the governor because <laughs> we don't have any clue what he's been doing lately, except kowtowing. I mean, to the haven't you been getting all the emails of all the places he's visiting? I mean, yeah. He- <laughs> yeah. You're listening to Today in Ohio. That's it for Thursday. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Laura. Come on back tomorrow to wrap up a week of news. Thank you for listening. <laughs>